idling out the war in the wild country beyond the settlements. Rusty knew the approximate whereabouts of fifty or sixty such men, banded together for mutual security, but they were of little interest to him. If the Confederacy wanted them captured, it should send Confederate army troops to do the job. Five or six rangers were no match for so many brushmen, even if they invested a full heart in the duty, and he had no heart for that kind of business. He had regarded secession from the Union four years ago as a grave mistake, though fellow Texans had voted in its favor. He saw the war as folly on both sides, north and south. If a man did not want to take part in it, the authorities should leave him the hell alone. Officialdom did not share his view, of course. Remaining with the rangers on the frontier kept him out of the military's sight. Freckle-faced Len Tanner had swung a long and lanky leg across the cantle, dismounting to study the tracks. Conscript dodgers, you think? That was a possibility, but instinct told Rusty the trail had been made by Comanches, or possibly Kiowas. Perhaps both, for they often joined forces to venture south from their prairie and mountain strongholds. The Indians were well aware that white men of the North had been at war with white men of the South for most of four years. They didn't understand the reasons, or care. What mattered was that the fighting's heavy drain upon manpower left the frontier vulnerable. In places, it had withdrawn eastward fifty to a hundred miles, leaving homes abandoned, strayed livestock running wild. Settlers who dared remain lived in jeopardy. After sending one man back to company headquarters near Fort Belknap to report to Captain Orrin Whitfield, Rusty had set out to follow the trail. Len Tanner rode beside him. Rusty had never decided whether Tanner's legs were too long or his horse too short, for his stirrups dangled halfway between the mount's belly and the ground. Eyes eager, Tanner said. Tracks are freshening. We ought to catch up with them pretty soon. Catching them is what we're paid for. Who's been paid? The Texas state government was notorious for being perpetually broke, unable to meet obligations. Wages for its employees were near the bottom of the priority list, especially for those men in homespun cloth and buckskin who rode the frontier picket line far away from those who wrote the laws and appropriated the money. Darkness had forced Rusty to halt the patrol and wait for daylight, lest they lose the trail. He had slept little, frustrated that the raiders might be gaining time. Night had been no hindrance to the Indians if they chose to keep traveling. Now he saw a half-burned cabin, a man and two boys carrying water in buckets from a nearby creek and throwing it on the smoking walls. He remembered the place. It belonged to a farmer named Haynes. Hearing the horses, the man grabbed a rifle. He lowered it when he saw that the riders were not Indians. He focused a resentful attention on Rusty. Minuteman, ain't you? Ranger was not an official term. The public often referred to the rangers as Minutemen, among other things. Looking upon two blanket-covered forms on the ground... Rusty felt a chill. The blankets were charred along the edges. Yes, sir, Mr. Haynes. How come you always show up when it's too late? 
Rusty could have told him there weren't enough rangers to be everywhere and protect everybody. The war back east had drawn away too many of the state's fighting age men. The ranger desertion rate had risen to alarming levels, partly out of fear of being conscripted into Confederate service, and partly because the state treasury was as bare as Mother Hubbard's cupboard. Even on those rare occasions when a paymaster visited the frontier companies, he never brought enough money to pay the men all that was due them. It was futile to try to explain that to a man who had just lost so much. We'll bury your dead, Rusty said. Then I'll send a couple of men to escort you and your boys to Fort Belknap. The farmer set his jaw firmly. We've got nobody at Belknap. Everybody we have is here, and here we're staying. You've got no roof over your head. We saved part of the cabin. We can rebuild it. You just stay on them Red Devil's trail. Rusty saw only the man and the two boys. Fearing he already knew, he asked, What about your women folks? The farmer cleared his throat, but his voice fell to little more than a whisper. They're here. He knelt beside one of the covered forms and lifted the scorched blanket, enough for Rusty to see a woman's bloodied face. The scalp had been ripped from her head. My wife. Other one is our little girl. The Comanches butchered them like they was cattle. How come they didn't get the rest of you? The farmer looked at the two boys. They still carried water to throw in the cabin, though the fire appeared to be out. Me and my sons was working in the field. The heathens came upon the cabin so quick they was probably inside before Anna Lee even saw them. I hit one with my first shot, and they drawed away. All we could do for Anna Lee and the baby was to drag them outside before they burned. He looked at the ground, as if ashamed he had been unable to do more. Rusty was undecided whether settlers, like Haynes, who remained on the exposed western frontier, were brave or merely foolhardy. Either way, he would concede that they were tenacious. Ruefully, the farmer turned his attention back to his wife and daughter. Conscript officers decided to pass me by on account of my age and my family. He cleared his throat again. I wish they'd taken me. My family would have moved back to East Texas and been safe. He gave Rusty a close scrutiny. You're a fit-looking specimen. Why ain't you in the Confederate Army? I figured I was needed more in the ranging service. The Texas legislature had fought and won a grudging concession from the Richmond government to defer men serving in the frontier companies. But the agreement was often ignored by conscription officers who raided the outlying companies and took rangers whether or not they were willing to go. Those drafts had increased as the Confederates' fortunes soured and its military ranks were decimated by battlefield casualties. So far, Rusty had avoided the call, though he had a nagging hunch that time was closing in. The farmer rubbed an ash-darkened sleeve across his face. His voice became contrite. Sorry I jumped all over you. 
I know it's not your doing that there ain't enough rangers. It's the Richmond government's fault, taking off so many men to fight a stupid war a thousand miles away, and the Texas government for letting them get away with it. Damn them all, and double-damn Jeff Davis. There had been a time when such words could put a man in mortal danger from rope-wielding zealots, determined to rid Texas of dissidents. Rusty had helped cut down the bodies of his friend Lon Monahan and Lon's son Billy from the limb of a tree in the wake of the hangman. Now and then, in the dark of night, the memory brought him awake, clammy with cold sweat and fighting his blanket. He had long harbored the same opinions as Haynes, but spoke them aloud only to friends he could trust. He had witnessed too much grief brought on by night-riding vigilantes like Colonel Caleb Dawkins, who didn't go to war themselves, yet demanded that others do so, or die. The farmer cautioned. There was sixteen, eighteen Indians. I don't see but six of you. We're lucky we've got six. The five who accompanied him, like Len Tanner, were men Rusty felt would stay with him if they skirted along the rim of hell. He looked again toward the bodies. He shuddered, for he'd seen too many like them. If we come across a minister, we'll send him. You'll want proper services for your folks. Much obliged, but I can read from the Bible same as any preacher. The older of the two boys appeared to be around twelve, the other perhaps ten. Rusty felt sorrow for them. They would have to finish growing up without their mother but at least they still had their father. Unlike Rusty, they had not lost all their family.